Jen, and I host the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We all want our children to lead fulfilling lives, but it can be so... Do you get tired of hearing the same old intros to podcast episodes? I don't really, but Jen thinks you might. I'm Jenny, a listener from Los Angeles, testing out a new way for listeners to record the introductions to podcast episodes. There's no other resource out there quite like Your Parenting Mojo, which doesn't just tell you about the latest scientific research on parenting and child development, but puts it in context for you as well, so you can decide whether and how to use this new information. I listen because parenting can be scary, and it's reassuring to know what the experts think. If you'd like to get new episodes in your inbox, along with a free infographic on 13 reasons your child isn't listening to you and what to do about each one, sign up at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash subscribe. You can also join the free Facebook group to continue the conversation. Over time, you might get sick of hearing me read this intro, so come and record one yourself. You can read from a script Jen's provided or have some real fun with it and write your own. Just go to yourparentingmojo.com forward slash record the intro. I can't wait to hear yours. Welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We are in for an interesting ride today because we are going to talk about how parents with eating disorders can navigate issues related to food and eating and body image with their children in a way that hopefully means that these issues are not going to be passed down to the next generation. And the reason this is going to be an interesting ride is due to something that I have mentioned previously on the podcast. So longtime listeners will already know. I mentioned in the episode on raising a girl with a healthy body image that my mom starved herself to death when I was was 10. And I've also struggled with less than healthy eating habits over the years. And I've been pretty conscious about this since my daughter Karis was born. She's seven and three quarters now. That three quarters is very important. And just a couple months ago, she asked me uh, where my mom is. We have talked about this before, so I'm not quite sure why it came up randomly out of nowhere. And I told her that she died. It was because she didn't eat enough. And Karis kind of looked at me and said, well, that's never going to happen to me because I love eating. <laughs> and so I guess I'm doing something right. <laughs> and so to help more of us along this path, my guest today is Dr. Sherry Sharvet. In her early career as a psychologist, Dr. Sharvet worked in an eating disorders inpatient unit and expected that most of the patients would be teenage girls and was surprised to find a number of adult women who were navigating disordered eating along with child rearing. And so she studied mothers with eating disorders and published the results and then worked with Dr. James Locke at Stanford University to develop a parent-based intervention program. Out of that work came the book, Parents with Eating Disorders, an intervention guide, which is aimed at therapists with patients with eating disorders, but it's short and very readable and very accessible to a non-specialist audience as well. Dr. Sharvet is now the Associate Director of Training at the Center for Mobile Mental Health at Palo Alto University. And she also serves as the Chief Clinical Officer of Elos Health, a startup in the mental health space. Welcome, Dr. Sharvet. It's great to have you here. Hi, Jen. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. I think the chronological beginning of all of this and where these disordered eating habits come from, what do you see? And then I'd love to sort of weave in a discussions about some of the broader societal issues that I see as well. So, you know, the term disordered eating, which also includes dieting and other unhealthy ways of referring to our bodies, is an umbrella term for multiple unhealthy behaviors aimed to affect 
the weight and the shape of an individual. And, you know, they are among the most common risk factors for developing negative body image and uh, eating disorders. And there isn't just one cause for disordered eating. can say, you know, that they occur because of one specific trigger, trauma, one comment that uh, someone made unintentionally. Data to show that all psychological difficulties and struggles, they thrive in a cultural niche where culture and the environment, our society creates the blueprint for the correct and air quote incorrect behaviors and psychological issues are expressed in regards to the dominant culture. And, you know, there is no surprise when we think about it this way that our culture is so twisted and distorted in the way that it perceives bodies in general and the female body in particular. And we know that it is really hard to block the ongoing messages that are very implicit and come from different angles. It's not just, you know, you close the TV and you tell your daughter or yourself to avoid social media altogether. It's intertwined in our culture in so many ways. And and in addition, there is this connect that, again, marketing pressures and other cultural forces uh, created between, you know, enjoying food, enjoying your body, celebrating your femininity and act of moral. And it says if you're a good person or a bad person, if you can control your eating and our culture is fat phobic and of course you know due to capitalistic reasons our bodies are a product of consumption i see this all the time coming at a very early age i remember when we had i am a mom of three girls so you know this affects me as a woman as a psychologist and also as a parent and i remember when my oldest daughter five years old and one of her friends coming over after kindergarten and they had dinner with us and then I offered them dessert and the other kid who was five years old well said oh I know if you eat a scoop of ice cream you need to run around the block for 10 times you know this was one of the times where I realized how these messages are penetrated into our kids brains and affect how the personality is built from a very early age. (laughs) (laughs) There was a lot there. Yeah. And I think one of the ideas that I want to pull through most clearly, I think, is there is some propensity within ourselves to perceive things in a certain way, to react to things in a certain way. Whether or not that happens and how that happens, happens within our family unit, which has its own history and you know interpersonal stuff going on, and also happens within our broader culture, which is very much set up, as you said, to prioritize, to make more important certain kinds of ways of being in the world. And that if you are in the world as a slim white woman, then you are able to celebrate your femininity in a way that would be shamed if you did not have that 
particular physique. This is every level <laughs> of our life from in here, just me, there's nothing mm-hmm. else going on in here to the ways that I interact with the people who are around me to everything that I see in the culture around me, what it's okay to display, what it's not okay to display, what's being sold to me. I'm thinking of a, a Diet Coke commercial that I saw recently that was talking about how amazing your mom was, how she got so much done, right? Protestant work ethic. You just work hard. <laughs> You'll be a great yes. mom. Look at all the stuff you learned from your mom diet coke you know you learned how to diet from your mom too <laughs> don't you want to keep that going don't you want to be like your mom as amazing as mom was have a diet coke mm-hmm. it's everywhere well, isn't it this is a very sad commercial yeah. i've been watching dancing with the stars with my 10 yeah. year old daughter she's a dancer and she only studies in schools all my kids only studies in dance schools where you know there was appreciation for diversity of bodies and you know Neither the teachers nor the students felt underweight or looked underweight. And it was very important for us as parents to have an opportunity to model diversity of bodies and weights and sizes and shapes, etc. And don't count at all. And they don't affect how much you enjoy dance. Anyhow, we did watch Dancing with the Stars. My Protestant part as a Jewish mom, uh, feeling guilty for uh, letting my child uh, watch the reality show. Mm-hmm. But, you know, dances are amazing. And, you know, all the messages about the work ethics and how hard they work to get to where they want to be. They're great topics to communicate and talk about with my daughter. But, you know, I had to tell her, look at their bodies. Their bodies are not realistic. They've had work done because a woman's body doesn't look this way. And look at them. All of them look the same. All of the women, except for one, you know, woman, the token Mm -hmm. participant with a different body size and shape. And I told her this, for instance, she's a 40-year-old woman. She had three kids. A woman's body after giving birth doesn't look this way. And I really wanted her to know when she sees these women that it's it's not real. Just, you know, like she watches Avengers and she doesn't think that she could like uh, jump from one place to another like uh, Spider-Man. Again, this is a work of fiction, seeing these bodies. And I'm really sad, you know, that not all parents are able or feel like they have the freedom to communicate these messages to their kids. Mm-hmm. And also, yeah. you know, me and my husband, we say that I am familiar with, you know, other messages that she subjected to outside the homes. It's an ongoing work yeah. to block the messages. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the reasons that I was attracted to your work is that it doesn't just focus on the personal solutions. It also expands this to involve the family in what's going on in addressing this this challenge. Before we go there, I want to sort of briefly acknowledge the necessity of broader social supports as well, which I think too often we neglect when we're looking at disorders that we consider to be just within the person. And I know that you have seen, you've written about an imbalance between maternal stressors and maternal resources. I'm wondering if you can speak briefly to what you see the role of broader society and our social structures in our healing from these kinds of issues. I started this work prior to becoming a parent myself, but and back then and even more so now, I don't blame parents. We as parents are programmed from very deep evolutionary and fundamental reasons to protect our offspring, to protect the young, and to be agents of the more general culture and society so that they will prosper in that society. And if I'm an individual who 
internalized the thinnest ideal. You know, someone received all their lives messages that, you know, they should control their bodies. They shouldn't enjoy food. Maybe they should remove all excessive hair, excessive fat, maybe wear certain clothing, speak in a specific voice, etc. A good parent communicates the values that they perceive as important to their child because they want the child to have the best tools to succeed in life and have a very rewarding experience in life. Therefore, you know, it's not fair to ask families or parents, you know, to change in isolation to the general environment. There shouldn't be this connect. You know, when I sat with my daughter and talked with her about Dancing with the Stars, or it could have been like any other TV show, mm-hmm. the work is not done when I finish speaking with her. It's important, you know, that I as an ambassador of healthy eating habits and self-acceptance would continue to communicate these messages and try and change the entire culture. Yeah, I think that's so critical to understand and to know that this is not just a thing that's going on within a person. And also we need to have support from our broader culture as well. And culture is transmitted through parents, as you said. And so the way that we speak to our children has impacts, but also the way we are in the world and how we perceive other people and what we criticize and (laughs) what we allow to stand. It speaks to what is normal in our culture, what is accepted, what is allowed. And so we are agents of that culture in both directions in terms of what we transmit to our children and also what we allow to exist in our culture. The final thing that before we start digging into the research that I want to make clear to folks who maybe you're the partner of someone who has an eating disorder and you're listening to this, or maybe you're like, this has never been a thing for me, but I just want to make sure that I understand what's going on here is that eating disorders are not always about being thin. (laughs) It's not always, oh, I see this amazing picture and I'm going to stick it on the wall and that's how thin I want to be. I think very often it's a perceived need for control. It's a lack of being able to to have real connection between other people in our lives. And this is a method that people can use to feel as though they have a sense of control, to feel like everything else is out of control and I can't talk to anybody about it. And so I'm going to control this instead. And I know that was the case for me. My teenage years were absolutely miserable. And so I thought, and it wasn't even a logical process that I thought through, you know, this is something I put words to afterwards. But I think the process was, if I just get thin enough, they won't see me. Mm -hmm. They will stop seeing me and they will leave me alone. I just want to articulate for folks who may be newer to this topic, this is not necessarily about, I just want to be thin. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, all there is a range of eating disorders. We have anorexia bulimia and avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder. Most of them, except for food intake disorder, they revolve around the issue of internalization of the thinnest ideal. That's clear because, you know, that's the ecological social niche in which these disorders exist, but they also incorporate and include great amount of psychological suffering. It's not just dieting. It's much more extreme than that. It's sometimes the clients describe it, you know, as the ivy on the house, feel like they're intoxicated. Their entire brain is, air quote, hijacked by the eating disorder and by thinking about what they eat, how much they eat, uh, the control of their body or the desire to control it, their shape and their weight. And it gives a lot of new content that feels more under their control. 
compared to life in general. All right, let's talk about how this shows up in pregnancy, in mothers. <laughs> I'm wondering what patterns you see of how this shows up in pregnancy. And I feel as though I actually did pretty well in that period because it felt like it had been the only time in my life when I sort of had permission, again, air quotes, to feel fat. Mm -hmm. and, and I saw a stat in one of your papers saying that 29 to 78% of women achieve full remission during pregnancy, which really surprised me. But I imagine that it, on the flip side of that, it can be a pretty scary time for some folks. So what what kind of patterns do you see showing up in the pregnancy period? In my studies, many of the clients that I met and in research, the average age of the eating disorder onset was uh, 14 years old. Although, you know, I have clients and have had uh, research patients uh, remember that they started dieting at age six. And on average, they became parents at around the age of 28. So this means that the eating disorder for those with the more chronic course was well embedded in their personality and even preceded their perceptions of themselves as uh, young adults and adults. This mindset sits in your brain and in the way that you communicate with life and perceive and interact with the world. It's clear that, you know, it will automatically carry also to the pregnancy period. And on the one hand, people really felt, you know, permission and legitimacy to eat, to enjoy food, but there was a lot of distress. One thing that was clear is that moms didn't want it to hurt the child. So I heard from many patients, you know, that they were really calculating which meal they may be able to purge. So they started tried eating the healthier stuff as they, you know, perceived it. And then if they ate uh, palpable food or foods high with uh, sugar or fat, carbs, they would felt that it's okay to purge them if they'd eaten a healthier food that the child or the fetus can enjoy. Most of them did not feel comfortable with their bodies. And, you know, you also attract a lot of attention as a pregnant woman, people comment on your body. Sometimes people want to touch it. I feel, you know, I've seen that throughout all cultures. So I assume it's a, an evolutionary thing. You know, we're just attracted to protect pregnant person. However, these moms didn't feel comfortable or happy times in their pregnancy. For many, it was a really great time. Our constant thoughts about how the baby would look like. How much would they weigh? They be attractive or not, etc. Coming from a very early stage in pregnancy, and also the mom's increased vulnerability made her, you know, want to attach many times to patterns that failed in the past, like they reduced distress and the eating disorder did serve as an unhealthy coping mechanism to many of these moms. Okay. Are there physical ways as well that it shows up? Uh, so we know that on average, they gain weight less than women without a history of eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And they report greater side effects like, yeah, compared to parents without an eating disorder. Okay. And then I think I saw in one of your papers, some mothers may arrive at childbirth with depleted energies, a lower sense of self-efficacy and more negative emotions. So there are mm -hmm. some for which this is a positive event. And there are others where, yes, this is a positive event. Maybe it's a wanted child, but there are definite challenges physically, mentally, emotionally in how this shows up and that we can get to childbirth being in a position mm -hmm. where we're already depleted by this experience of just having been pregnant. And then I'm curious about what happens after the baby's born. We're in a 
real transition period. It's hard for any person <laughs> to navigate this period. What kinds of characteristics do you see in the infants, um, as well as in the parents of the infants, and how are those two related? Okay. First of all, most of the um, mothers report honeymoon periods with the baby and with their bodies postpartum, where, you know, maybe because of being too preoccupied with the baby, they had less time to focus on their bodies. Maybe there's greater self-acceptance, more permission, even from the environment to not lose all uh, the pounds that you gained in pregnancy. I've seen in all of them really immense commitment to the child's well-being. Okay. I want to say that up front. Mm -hmm. And in addition, there's a lot of distress related with breastfeeding. They don't necessarily breastfeed more or less, but the thoughts that accompany breastfeeding, the, we all parents are unsure, especially with our first child, have they eaten enough? Is it too much? Is, do I want to feed them? Is it okay? Maybe I, not enough. And there are always, you know, messages in the back of your head. These moms, the stress is increased. They report the transition to motherhood is more challenging, primarily because this interaction of feeding one's child and not having the cookbook or the very explicit guidelines on how, you know, things should work are very difficult to, especially to a subset of individuals, those with, you know, obsessive tendencies and high need for control. Mm -hmm. And again, this is something that every parent is, you know, experiencing. If there's an eating disorder in the background, it exacerbates many of these difficulties. Yeah. And we have this real strange cultural bifurcation of messages in infancy, right? Infancy is the one time when you look at a chubby child and you think, oh, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? <laughs> and, and then it gets to a certain point and that chubbiness isn't okay anymore. <laughs> and I, I wonder if there's extra difficulty there. Like if I would look at a chubby child and think, oh, that's great. You know, society says it's great. Or, but is it really great? There is a difficulty there around children who may be, you know, at different points in, in what we would consider quote unquote normal weight? Yes, uh, absolutely. Correct. Many moms and parents in general describe heightened stress around how their child is feeling, how they're developing their hunger, etc. And to the extent that I, one of the clients uh, told me that, you know, she used to go in the mall with uh, the trolley and the baby and people would ask, how old is this baby? And she would lie and say that they're actually older so that people won't say, oh, wow, what a big baby. They look, you know, whatever they would say. And maybe she would never receive any such response in the real world, but in her internal experience, she was fearful that people would judge her baby for their body. And that was, you know, when the child was four and a half months old. Mm. Yeah, another person told us in group that, her mother-in-law really appreciated every fat in her baby's body. This woman felt like she wanted to die. She thought it said that she's not a good mom mm -hmm. for not protecting her baby, again, three to four months old from the risk of becoming overweight. Okay. And so all of this is sort of going on underneath the surface. And meanwhile, we're supposed to be happy because we have a new baby, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm wondering if all of this contributes to a greater incidence of postpartum depression, of other challenges related to parenting. Do you see that? It's hard to tell if this is 
primarily due to the stressors of parenting with an eating disorder history because many of the individuals also have a co-occurring depressive or anxiety disorder. So, you know, in general, they're more vulnerable than the average parent. They also display amazing stamina and ability to parent their child and put their own difficulties aside. I do want to, you know, highlight that again and again so that parents viewing this or listening to this podcast wouldn't feel like they're doomed and, and that they've failed as parents. I've seen parents really do their best to help their child and protect them from any negative effects of their parental eating disorder. Mm -hmm. When I posted about this in our community, I think one of the things that came across most clearly was how do I stop this from making its way to the next generation? So Mm -hmm. if we haven't sort of been able to consciously make a decision to stop this from going through to the next generation. What kind of shifts do we see as that child is getting older and we're getting into issues around we're in solid foods by now and we can see Mm -hmm. how much food they're eating. Maybe they're having picky eating or maybe they're eating everything in sight. (laughs) How does that interaction impact the relationship? Okay, that's a great question because I think you really got it in here in the transition between the baby who's being uh, 100% fed and you control what they eat and their food choices. And then you start having a toddler with some differentiation between you and them and a child that can have their own personality and their own hunger and different foods that they like or dislike. And here we really see many conflicts around mealtime, a heightened stress in the parents, increased conflicts often between the parents, especially if there's one with an eating disorder history and another without such history and they're unsure how to help. This is a time where people mostly reach out for treatment. By the way, they don't necessarily know that there's such a thing as parent-based prevention and maybe they can't really verbalize even to themselves that their history and their own perception of their own bodies affected their child. So they started out to pediatric dietitians or pediatricians or other coaches, etc. instead of like reaching to an eating disorder specialist because it doesn't feel like it's mm-hmm. their own issue. It feels like it's their child's. Right. And we see heightened anxiety about food in all different angles. You know, sometimes parents feel like they haven't had any like schedule or routine eating growing up, so they don't know how to instill it in their child. Some parents feel low self-worth and then self-esteem and low self-efficacy as parents. How do I, a parent with eating disorder history, can really engineer healthy eating habits in my family when I'm unable to do so. And oftentimes they don't even have ideas for what to serve their children because they haven't had that experience often growing up, maybe because the eating disorder developed very early and did not have a long enough history of eating healthfully with their families as a child. Yeah. I remember one of the case studies from your book, which was drawn from a composite of different people, Mm -hmm. but it's talking about the parent basically served the same meal for dinner every night. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Beans and broccoli. And I forget what the other thing was, but every single night. (laughs) 
(laughs) And the kids are in active rebellion. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm curious about what children notice about all this, because when I look back, I don't remember a lot. I know that memories show up in different ways and that it's definitely possible there are implicit memories buried that I am not able to articulate now. Mm -hmm. I, I do remember occasions when my dad would be working late and we would be allowed to have sort of a special meal, which was spaghettios on toast and and my mom would eat separately. And I actually don't even know if she ate on those nights. I remember how much she weighed. If she went over seven stone, which is about 98 pounds, then she was overweight by her standards. But I didn't have any frame of reference for what that meant because I weighed you know, 50 pounds at that time. So sort of a couple things that stick out. And she weighed the breakfast cereal too. She got one ounce of the muesli that she made herself with no added sugar in it. And my dad got two ounces of it. But those are sort of really isolated things. So what do you see and how children notice these things and respond to these kinds of patterns that they're seeing in their parent? Well, children notice all of these patterns. We unintentionally model behaviors to our kids, positive ones and uh, probably suboptimal ones or the ones that we actually don't want them to observe. And they see everything and they hear our comments and they see what different people eat at lunch or dinner and who's at the table and who's just serving food. They identify the distress that parents feel. You know, they're very curious about us and what we're doing. So they can also often follow the parents to see what they're doing and then, you know, can observe when they become aware to, you know, purging or obsessive weighing, etc., etc. So unfortunately, they see everything and without having any other feedback, they assume that this is the correct way to address food and weight and bodies. Yeah, you're reminding me of something that I read somewhere and I can't for the life of me remember where, but a parent said that she caught her young child standing over the toilet with the back end of a fork down her throat. And, you know, what are you doing? And, oh, well, isn't this what we do after meals? Right, okay. the, the yeah. child had seen that and just thought it was what we do after meals. So yes, exactly. So that they're probably watching. <laughs> they are watching. They're probably noticing. <laughs> yeah, um, and there is that data to show. You know, there is unintentional modeling of all behaviors, but also eating disordered behaviors. That is why, you know, highly recommend to parents not to say anything about anyone's body in front of her, any child. Not about, you know, someone uh, gaining weight, losing weight, changing, whatnot. It's just not a topic for discussion at our home. So, you know, sometimes my kids will say, did you notice and -and so-and-so, you know, gained weight, weight, no, no, I'm not looking at these things. Even, you know, if I notice, but it's just not legitimate topic or an interesting topic. Everything is legitimate to talk about, but I try to communicate. This is not something that thinking about. And, you know, the other day, one of the moms in school told me that her husband, you know, makes comments about like good looking women in his eyes, you know, mm-hmm. in the street or in general. And she asked, is it true that, you know, our kids here this way? And then they'll start referring to women this way. And I said, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And people really do that unintentionally, you know, even the mom, like whose daughter saw her purging and then thought that she should, uh, you know, go to the toilet and vomit after a meal. I'm sure that this mom has the best intentions for her daughter. It's not like that she wakes up in the morning and say, "Mm, 
let me see how I'm going to make my daughter's life more complicated or uh, mm, my desire as a parent, like my goal for 2022 is to instill negative body image in, in my baby. Okay. No one says that intentionally, but people do what they do. And if something is very troubling and worrisome for them, then they would engage more in it and become more preoccupied. And then kids are influenced. And again, it's not in the single home where this is happening. It happens within a context of an environment that reinforces lack of self-acceptance and an ongoing attempt to change our bodies and the genetic body type that we were genetically programmed to live in. Yeah, because then you can sell us stuff to uh, make that happen. Exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What kind of outcomes do we see among children whose parents struggle with an eating disorder? I'm curious about both from an eating perspective and a broader perspective as well. Okay. From an eating disorder perspective, we do see there's increased internalization of the Phenocyte deal. We see higher body dissatisfaction in kids as early as uh, five years old. We see a greater proportion of different diets from very early on. One aspect that, you know, I don't think that I've mentioned so far is the flip side of restriction, which is an intended focus on physical activity in the guise of health behaviors. Mm -hmm. I've had uh, pediatricians and dietitians telling me about kids as young as seven year old arriving to the pediatrician with stress fractures mm. because they are on the swim team and the um, you know, football team and the soccer team. And they work out so much throughout the day without giving their bodies uh, sufficient nutrition. And we see driven exercise in kids at, starting at a very early age and Again, it's like the same thinness ideal, but it comes back in a twisted way. No, it's not thinness, it's athleticism, mm -hmm. but it's the same issue altogether. So I yeah. do want to highlight eating disorder can display the desire for uh, weight loss, etc., which we all know, but it can also be associated with messages about health and physical activity, again, in the guise of health uh, behaviors. Yeah. And another thing I was, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but it was a bit surprising to me when I was reading through your work was the extent to which control shows up in other ways that parents interact with their children in things like play. And the way that these mothers seem to be overall seeing their children as being more volatile, less positive, and that they were just struggling a bit more with parenting in general. Can you speak to that a little bit? So in one of our studies, they recorded parents with an eating disorder history, interacting with their kids in a open, non-structured play situation, not around eating, not around teaching, but just playing with them. And their uh, research assistants who did not know which group this mom belonged to evaluated uh, these uh, play scenes and the videos using the emotional availability scales. We realized that, you know, these moms are oftentimes average and everyone and all these moms have not been to treatment uh, 
for, you know, helping them become better parents. Okay. Uh, I just want to mention that these data in general, not only in my own studies, are driven from populations of parents who have not received parent-based prevention or any other specialized intervention for parenting. This is pre-intervention and pre-support. But we did see greater anger expressed towards the children, more controlling behaviors. These moms, for instance, again, on average as a group, tended more to interfere their child's spontaneous play in comparison to women without eating disorders. And this heightened stress and the sense of low parental self-efficacy affecting, you know, how they interact with their kids in many other domains, not just arena of food and eating. Okay. So I wonder if you can tell us about parent-based prevention. What are some of the main theoretical contracts that it sits on and how does it work? Okay. So this is really, you know, a study, a treatment that was developed uh, based on my experience with these parents, you know, as I interviewed them and ran my studies as part of my dissertation, I really realized that there are inadequate or even non-existent specialized interventions for them and they kind of you know, fall between the cracks because it's not really something for a nutritionist because there's not a problem yet. And like they know the rules, they read all the books. And on the other hand, the pediatrician doesn't often understand their experiencing. And what I realized very early on that change shouldn't be the responsibility of the parent with the eating disorder history. They should engage their partner or another person that can support them. We understand that these parents need a lot of support that is focused on the feeding interactions, reducing mealtime conflict, helping them accept and contain some of the uncertainty that is part of parenting in general and give them more skills and tools that can help them in parenting their kids and in also making healthy decisions about their children's lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So the treatment is 12-session program. Both parents, if they're two parents or another support person, participate in almost all meetings. In the first phase, we meet the parents, evaluate them. We educate them on Lean Satter's division of responsibility in feeding model, which says, you know, that there should be some differentiation of responsibility. Parents are responsible for what the child eats when and where, and the child is responsible for if they're eating, yes or no, and if yes, how much. And many of the struggles and unhealthy processes develop when there's clash between the responsibilities of each party. And of course, we talk about, you know, healthy eating habits, having three meals a day and between two to three snacks, having all macronutrients in each meal, not skipping any specific food group, etc., including desserts and snacks in your regular eating and allowing more room for flexibility. Part of uh, phase one is the family meal. We invite families to come and have a picnic in the clinic. And it's really a great experience. First of all, you get to see the kids because I mostly work with the parents. And, you know, it just adds another layer for me working with the parents. But also see all the transactions, what they talk about, mm-hmm. they choose to bring who eats and who doesn't eat at the dinner that or the picnic that was supposed to be for the entire family and the conversations that they have. And you learn a lot 
in identifying areas where you can intervene. Then in the second phase, most of the sessions are with the parents with the eating disorder history because they feel like they need their, some room to vent out, to process some of the information. There's a lot of guilt on the one hand, guilt that they feel as parents, all the time guilty as a parent as well, but also some guilt that they feel towards the eating disorder, which serves like as an external entity, which is also another family member conflict between different loyalties. What we found is that towards session eight, parents described that mealtime conflicts have dramatically decreased, improving everyone's quality of life and strengthening the relationship. Mm-hmm. We often invite, make the other parent without the eating disorder become more involved in the feeding interactions and in all this fear. These are couples that many times have been able to, you know, communicate very effectively and have a very close bond between one another in all areas, but the food and eating arena. Mm-hmm. Here, you know, many times from parents that the other parent without the eating disorder really loves their partner and understood that this partner becomes highly anxious when food is mentioned. So they thought that the other parent, that the best thing to do, the most supportive thing to do would be to just withdraw and let the other person, you know, deal with feeding. And, you know, we can hear sometimes someone says, you know, I've been in the other room and I heard dad and my sons uh, scream at one another over what to eat and the uh, children ask for seconds and he wouldn't let them. And she would say, you know, I just knew that he's too anxious about it and too controlling and I didn't want to interfere. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, some of the interventions are giving the parent with eating disorder a night off, go have yoga or go out with friends and the other person is in charge of dinner. This reduces a lot of the anxiety, you know, mm-hmm. uh, contrary to what people uh, believe. And also many partners, because they want to be good partners, because they want to help and don't know how to help, they collaborate with the eating disorder in a very unhealthy way. Again, they do this in order to reduce conflict. So, you know, we had, for instance, a partner who used to buy a lot of cabbage to his wife because that's what she was eating. Maybe she was on one of those unhealthy cabbage diets and used to talk about it more with the cashier at Trader Joe's than with his wife. And she would ask, do you guys have a rabbit or something? Like how, why do you get all these cabbage? And he would actually speak with her more mm-hmm. than he would have, you know, talked with his wife. Mm-hmm. And we facilitated greater interaction with them on this topic. You know, in other areas, they were a great couple and they were very open with one another and very communicative and relying on one another. This specific domain felt like something both of them did not feel like they were able to touch. And mm-hmm. so this is another thing that we're facilitating, you know, another partner that bought laxatives every week to his wife without asking, why do you need, you know, dozens mm-hmm. of laxatives uh, every week, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So again, you know, when we talk about mostly moms, you know, the parents with eating disorder history, internal state and their relationship with the child, we always need to remember the, you know, extended circles, the other family members and the cultural environment in which all these behaviors are being carried out.
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for all of that. I just wanted to mention right at the beginning of that, you mentioned division of responsibility, Ellen Satter's model. And so if anyone's listening and isn't sure what that is, we actually interviewed Ellen Satter a few months ago. So you can go and search division of responsibility on yourparentingmojo.com and you'll find that interview and then you can get a, a deeper dive into what that involves. And yeah, that was one of the reasons I was so excited about reading your book <laughs> was to see the, the interplay between these topics. One thing that I often, well, not often, maybe sometimes see from parents. And you sort of alluded to it when you mentioned mothers a minute ago, (laughs) and then corrected to parents. Oftentimes, this is sort of female identifying parents who are navigating this. But I see another group of parents who report a different kind of challenge. Often the female identifying parent that comes to me and says, I'm doing okay. My partner is super controlling. My male identifying partner is super controlling uh, over our child's eating and their parent was really controlling. I'm wondering if there was eating disorder history mm-hmm. in, in their parent as well. And the female identifying parent, you know, the mother is not sure what to do because the dad won't accept any help, won't accept any suggestion that something might be wrong, even never mind that we do anything differently. What advice would you give to parents who are in that situation? Decisions about our parenting, about our family and, you know, any changes we want to implement in our family if we live with partners that we trust and love and appreciate, then changes better be carried out together in collaboration. I would advise any parent who's concerned about partner or about, you know, kind of messages that they communicate to their kids intentionally and unintentionally to seek advice. You know, you can speak with any clinician who has expertise with the parents and, and parenting and gauge their advice. And I think the most important thing is just the conversation just by, you know, meeting in the middle or finding a common ground is more important than, you know, the ultimate decision that you guys reach at the end. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, we want to facilitate greater communication, more openness, more trust of one another. You know, I had uh, many times where moms called and said, I want to come, but my husband doesn't, or the other way around. What do you suggest? And I said, well, you know, you're married to her, not to me. I mean, if you guys have been together for five years, you know your ways and, you know, making her do things that she, you know, dislikes, you know, like visiting uh, extended family or all, every couple has their own types of negotiation. So it's important to you and it should be important to you. Then you'll find a ways to, you know, let your partner know that it's important for you. And then as we wrap up, I'm curious about the efficacy of this program and about how it can work for different people in different circumstances. I think one of the criticisms I see, not of this program specifically, but of eating disorder treatments in general, is that they tend to be very formulaic and they're going to push you through at the pace that they want you to push through and you need to show progress, particularly in the US to insurance companies (laughs) who want you to be fixed at the end of the program. I'm wondering if the answer here is not to consider this, you know, you mentioned 12 week program as the program and and that's it, but it's sort of part of a a broader suite of services that this parent, this family is going to need. And then uh, what kind of efficacy rates do you see in the people that you treat? How does that play out? So these are great questions. We have data to show high efficacy in these families, both parents with eating disorders and their partners, both reporting lower eating problems and other problems in their kids and more satisfaction as a parent, lower eating, depressive and anxiety symptoms, and so on. We also 
seen the good results also in adaptations that we've made for parent-based prevention, for instance, with parents following a bariatric surgery. So people who might have greater genetic predisposition, higher weight status, and they undergo weight loss surgery, bariatric surgery, they have more, you know, concrete reasons to be worried about their kids at times. Oftentimes, they need to dramatically change the way that they eat and they don't know how to, you know, map this change onto the entire family's routine. So we created an adaptive version for parent-based prevention for families following a bariatric surgery and uh, we shortened it for six weeks and we've delivered it fully via telehealth. And we published the results recently, also demonstrating great efficacy and particularly the acceptance of parents of uh, peers and their readiness to continue the conversation with one another or with other people who support them in their parenting beyond the time-limited program. So mm-hmm. we're very, very happy about the results that we're seeing. Yeah. And seeing this as a journey, right? This is not a 12 weeks and you're fixed kind of thing. This is a lifelong thing that's going to be part of your life and navigating it is going to be part of your life and needing support for that is going to be part of your life for a long time too. True. Also, you know, as your child gets older and, you know, they enter different phases in their lives and raising toddler or kindergartner or an elementary school kid where, you know, we do have more control than them on their routine, schedule, eating choices, etc. versus a tween or a child going to college. They have different developmental needs during the different stage in life and your ability to control what they're doing is limited. Also some rebellion on the child side and we prepare parents to, you know, anticipate these changes and identify the resources for support in their environment that they could reach out to if they need for support. I'm wondering if there's any way that parents can find practitioners who are trained in your program or who have specific expertise. Is, is there a resource that you can point parents towards? That's a great question. You know, the more I provide trainings and educations and as, you know, our field changes and discussions of external forces on parenting become more common. I think more and more clinicians are able to address these issues and discuss them in treatment. I think, you know, in the main eating disorder programs across the U.S., uh, there are many clinicians who I had the privilege of training. So I think, you know, just asking the clinician if they feel competent and ready to address this issue as well would be where I would start. So asking the clinician whether how they see broader societal forces impacting this. Yes. What they see is the partner's role in supporting me. Those kinds of questions could help get us to whether this is somebody who is comfortable seeing this as a broader problem and not just something in me that needs to be fixed. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Okay, super. Yeah. Ultimately, what we need on your website is a list. <laughs> Maybe one day okay. we'll have a list. Yeah, of okay, yeah. <laughs> that on the to-do list. Yeah, as we are speaking, I understand this needs to be the next step. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here today and for writing the book, which I found really, really useful and, and insightful. Again, it's not very long. It is geared towards practitioners, but I got a lot out of reading it. So I would encourage anyone who's interested in this to take a look at that book. It's called Parents with Eating Disorders, an Intervention Guide. And so I'm really grateful for your time here today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
Yeah. And all of the references for today's episode can be found at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash eating disorders. Hi, this is Jenny from Los Angeles. We know that you have a lot of choices about where you get information about parenting, and we're honored that you've chosen us as we move toward a world in which everyone's lives and contributions are valued. If you'd like to help keep the show ad-free, please consider making a donation on the episode page that Jen just mentioned. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Don't forget to head to yourparentingmojo.com forward slash record the intro to record your own messages for the show.